Here's how the book of Malachi begins. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me in verse 1. Malachi begins with a very short explanation to what we're going to read throughout this book. It says in verse 1, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, that is really a summary of what I just explained. We see who is talking, who it's talking to, all these great details, and they're important. It's very good that we see this. God is speaking. It's the word of the Lord. Who? To who? To Israel. Not to Refinery Church. To Israel. So as we read this, we can learn from it, but we have to understand this is an audience that isn't us. God is speaking to people that have a completely different history than we do. But who is speaking? Because God doesn't speak to them directly. We learn here that it's the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi being the prophet God calls to do this. In fact, Malachi's name means my messenger. And so we can kind of see how all of this is lining up. So God has this prophet. He wants him to go and talk to them. And like I said, God is upset with how the Israelites have acted. The Israelites at this point have really had a great disdain for God and have not really been obedient to what God would want them to do. And so when God begins to speak to the Israelites, what do you think he says to them? Imagine for yourself, as a parent or someone who's had to discipline someone else in your life, how do you begin a disciplinary action? How do you begin doing things that aren't exactly the the most fun thing in the world when you have to go tell someone they're doing something wrong? Well, here's how God responds, or here's how God begins this decision. Starting in verse 2, God opens with, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, is how God begins this message to the Israelites. Understand that God is reminding them of something that they have forgotten. The Israelites have forgotten God loved them. And God begins this by reminding them of his love. God begins this by reminding them that he does, in fact, love them. And I'll stop here just to say that this is a great reminder for us in the modern day. We can look at this and be reminded of how good our God truly is. Understand that when we look at God, God is the perfect Father. We call him the perfect Father because that's exactly what he is. He is the perfect Father, and he acts according to what a perfect Father would do. What do I mean by that? Well, this is a great example of it. There are many examples, but this is a great one of God acting as a perfect Father. Because what he's about to do is what a father should do, discipline his children. They've done something wrong, so God is going to remind them of what the right answer is. But he does not begin with discipline, or at least doesn't begin just like an angry lashing out towards his children. No, God begins the way any good father would begin, by reminding his children that everything he's about to do is in love. Yes, he's going to go through the disciplinary actions needed for the Israelites, for his children, but he's not going to do it out of anger. He's going to do it out of love. It's a great reminder for the fathers here tonight. What does a great father do? What does a perfect father do? A perfect father has a good balance of both. A father who is perfect or a father that is good is one that is going to provide a clear act of love, a clear showing of his love for his family, for his children. But also, a good father is going to be a disciplinary. He's not going to allow things to just slide. Both must be true at once. And God is giving a great example of that to the Israelites, to his children. 
reminding them of his love, but also reminding them of what is right. And we, as believers, when we're taking care of children, must remind them of what's right. We cannot allow ourselves to just do whatever. God would allow us to just do whatever. But it continues. God reminds them of, their lo- of his love in verse 2, and he continues in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us is how the Israelites respond And that is the central question for us this evening. How have you loved us? It's the question the Israelites ask of God because at this point in time, they are actually pretty confused. They do not feel that God loves them any longer. Or at least that's the way they're acting. They're treating it as if God doesn't love them any longer. And what we just saw was God giving a pretty clear description of, I do love you, and yet the Israelites are confused. They do not know whether God truly loves them anymore. And you might hear that and think, man, that's crazy. Why would the Israelites not feel that God loves them? I mean, have they not paid attention for the last couple of hundred years? Have they not paid attention to what God just did in Babylon? He brought them back to their homeland. Has God, have they not paid attention to all that God has been doing in their lives? It might seem crazy when we look at it from a bird's eye view, but can we ask ourselves a real question? Is that not what we do all the time? When we ask that question of ourselves or to God, God, do you really love me? Do you really care for me? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that question asked where people will come in and they truly wonder, does God actually love me? And I'm reminded of this section of scripture because we're not the only people to ask that question. The Israelites asked that question. It might seem crazy, but that's the question they were asking. It's the question you and I ask ourselves often. Does God really love me? Well, God has an answer for the Israelites because this is the question they asked and God's going to answer them the way only God could. It's a very unique answer, but I want to walk through it with you. Starting in verse three, here's how God responds to this question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, I will say, if your spouse or your children came to you and said, do you really love me? And you responded this way, they're probably not going to get a great straight answer. might be a little bit confusing of an answer if someone were to ask you, do you really love me? But God is making a point here, and I want to break this down, because it might seem confusing, but it's actually the best way God could have explained his answer. Do you love me? Here's God's response, and here's what his response means. God is referring to these two characters, Jacob and Esau. Now, who is Jacob and Esau? Very short explanation. We can find these two men in the book of Genesis, chapters 25 through 27. And these are two twin brothers. Their father was Isaac. Isaac's father was Abraham, so you can kind of get the picture of where we're at. Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. And Esau was born first. He was given the inheritance by his father. He was going to get his inheritance by his father, being the firstborn. But it's Jacob 
who, being the younger brother, tricks his brother, steals from his brother his inheritance, goes to their father, who at this point was very blind, and tricks their father to giving him their inheritance, and then he runs off. Jacob is not the good guy in the story. In fact, Jacob truly shows his own, well, who he is. He is not a great character. He's not a great guy. But it might be surprising to you, you might already know this, and it should have been surprising when you first learned it, that Jacob, even though he was not exactly the greatest guy in the world, Jacob was chosen by God to continue being a part of the lineage of the Israelites, meaning that Jacob is one of the forefathers of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. God, as we just saw, God chose Jacob over his brother Esau. And yes, you heard me right, it was Jacob God chose. Not Esau, not the one that was stolen from. Jacob, the one who did the stealing. The one who tricked their blind father. The one who really has not shown himself as the greatest guy in the world. God selected to continue the lineage towards the people of Israel. Why? Why on earth would God choose this guy? I mean, is there anyone better on earth for God to choose? probably were people better on earth for God to choose, but that is not the point. Why would God choose Jacob? Why would God choose Jacob over, it, over Esau? Well, I do my best to explain this. One, one of the reasons God chose Jacob, probably the main reason God chose Jacob, is because it shows us that God has a plan way past, way bigger than Jacob himself. In fact, it's Paul in the book of Romans that does a great job explaining this. It's found in, ver- in chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, where Paul says, Though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. This is the key part. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Understand this. God chose Jacob before Jacob was even born. In fact, God chose Jacob before Isaac was born and Abraham was born. God chose Jacob from the very beginning because God's plan is from the very beginning. God knew what was going to happen. God knew he was going to choose. God chose Jacob, point blank. But it wasn't after Jacob was born. It wasn't after Jacob did X, Y, and Z. It wasn't after Jacob you know, said the right combination of words for God to say, okay, now Jacob's ready, I'll choose him. As we just saw in verse 11, it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with Jacob himself. It had to do with the fact that God is proving a point. It has nothing to do with works. And if Jacob was the best guy in the world, it would have been about works. God chose Jacob specifically because it had nothing to do with him. God is proving that it is his plan and that his choice in Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob, but had to do with the fact that God will reign supreme regardless of who is in, who's doing things for God, how I think people are doing things for God. God will reign supreme. Jacob is only a point that God is trying to make. Yes, Jacob is not a great guy. Look at Scripture. That is what you see in nearly every person in the Bible. They were not the greatest advocate not for God. They were not the greatest person for God. They were, they were definitely not the one with the best resume for God. And yet, time and time again, we see story after story of people in Scripture who have no business being the man for God. And yet, 
God uses them and uses them very well. Understand that what God is saying is that his choice in Jacob, his choice in anyone, has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the fact that God chose them. That's it. Their works don't matter. Their decisions don't matter. It is only about what God wanted, and God wanted Jacob to be the one to lead into the Israelites. That's it. In fact, this brings us back to Malachi because it shows us that God's plan is way bigger than we could ever imagine. It transcends time. It goes all throughout history, past, present, and future. God's choice of Jacob was one that was done all the way at the beginning of time. And so when God tells the Israelites this, what God is trying to say is basically this. If I can translate it for us, God is basically telling the Israelites, remember, I chose Jacob. I chose Jacob because I love you. Yes, you, the Israelites who aren't born yet, who don't exist yet, I chose Jacob because I love you. I was thinking of you when I was working with Jacob. I was thinking of you as I was working with Abraham. I was thinking of you as I was working with Moses and Noah and all these people that came before you. I was thinking of you because I love you and and my love for you transcends time. God loved the Israelites before they even existed. God loved them before anything existed because God loves his people and God is bigger than our own understanding of time. God loved them. And as we've seen, as he explains to them, I loved you when Jacob was chosen because I knew what was going to occur. Jacob would become you. Jacob would become the nation of Israel. And I chose you because I knew you would be coming from Jacob. God's love transcends time. And it brings us to our main idea here. God loved the Israelites. Yes, we see this. But because we can look at this story and we can see how God's love transcended time for the Israelites, we can defer that God loves us the same way. God's love transcends time. God's love goes beyond what we understand. He didn't start loving us the second we were born. He started loving us before we ever existed. God, started, God began to love us before anything ever existed because God is love and God loves his people. There's another, re- another way I know this and it's not just trying to figure it out through the book of Malachi and through what God said to the Israelites. No, I know God loved you before you ever existed not because of the Israelites and not because of Malachi because of Jesus. Think about this for a moment. We know that God loves us because of what he did on the cross, through what his son did on the cross. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 8 that says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll read that one more time. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now understand, God's plan from the very beginning was to send his son to die for you and for me and for every person that has ever lived. That was God's plan. And it's not a plan that we see was last minute. It wasn't a plan that we see that was kind of put together at the end there. It had to do with God choosing us from the very beginning and his plan being from the very beginning. 
And if you look at John chapter 1, you'll see Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. God chose us, and God sent his son for us. And so, as we kind of come to a close here, I want to just help you understand there are too many people who have this perspective in the church who have this perspective where they'll say things like, you know, I, was, I, was, I made a mistake and therefore God can't love me any longer. Oh, I made a mistake and there's no way I can come back from that because God can't love me after I did X, Y, and Z. Or maybe you said this one, I'm just too far gone for God to love me. I've just done too many bad things for God to love me. Not only is that unbiblical, it doesn't even make any sense. Because what we know to be true about Scripture is that God sent his son before you ever existed. God had his plan for his son to save you before you ever existed. And so how on earth can you make too many mistakes for God to save you? How on earth can you do too many things bad for that love to not fix it? That doesn't make any sense. What we know to be true about God is that he sent a son, his name is Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who instead of going and living exactly how he wanted in royalty, God chose to live in humility. We know that God chose to live that perfect life, not just because he wanted to go see what it was like on earth, but because he wanted to come and save his people. And the only way to do that was to become one of us. And when he did, when he chose to become one of us and live that perfect life, at the end of it all, he knew the ending would be him dying on a cross. Why a cross? Why death? Because someone had to die. And if it wasn't him, it would have been every single one of us. Because we all are guilty of sin. Yes, by definition, our sin makes us too far gone. I'm going to say that right now. By definition, you've made too many mistakes. By definition, you've done too many things wrong to be redeemed. The only difference is, is God had a plan way past your sin and if that was the end of it we'd all be doomed but we know that Jesus Christ came and died for us and so if you're in this room if you've ever even had that thought of does God love me one you need to understand we see in in Malachi God's love for the Israelites transcended time even though they didn't see God working for a couple of decades they assumed oh that means God's forgotten us no God loved them from the beginning of time, and even if a few decades go by and you don't see anything happening, it doesn't mean God doesn't love them anymore. Same with us. All because you don't see God every day doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He loves you because he sent his son for you. He's already done everything he needed to do. And so if you've ever been in, in that space, whether maybe you're there now, where you've just thought, man, I don't know. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I have made too many mistakes. Well, one, remember, God loves you because he sent his son for you. It's not about how much you've done. As we just saw, he chose Jacob not because of his works, because he just wanted to choose him. And he's definitely not because you made too many many mistakes because that completely neglects the fact that Christ died on the cross. And that blood is good enough for your sins because that is perfect blood that went in replacement of your blood. And that is blood that we want to worship. And that is what we're going to continue to do in just a moment. I want to offer this for you. We do this regularly. And it is always an open invitation. But again, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what you've been through or what you're thinking currently. But I want you to know that you should not leave here ever 
feeling like you are too far gone from God. Maybe you're a Christian and you've just really had a slump in life and you're really struggling. My encouragement tonight is for you to come to the altars and spend time praying with God and asking him to remind you of his love. Maybe it's just going back and reading Malachi 1, 1 through 5. But spend time with God at the altars if that's where you've been. Or maybe you're not a Christian in the room and you've been trying to figure out what you believe. Let me tell you, I know for certainty that our God loves you. And because of that sacrifice on the cross, our God wants to spend time with you. He wants a relationship with you. And there's nothing you've done, past, present, or future, that can keep that from happening if you choose it. And God is offering that choice. If you need prayer, like always, the altars are open and you are more than welcome to join us at the altars. If you want prayer with somebody, come to the front here and we'll pray with you. But if you just want time alone with God, the stairs and the sides of the, of the platform are there for you just to pray and to come and lay your burdens at the altars and leave them there. Tonight, the burden I'm highlighting is the burden of assuming God doesn't love you or that you're too far gone from God. It is a burden that you should not hold. It's a burden that you should leave here and leave free of that ridiculous lie. That is a ridiculous lie, and it's from Satan himself. God, uh, Satan wants you to feel that God does not love you, and that is just not the case. Let me pray for us. Before I do that, stand with me, because we're going to end in worship, and we're going to end with a response, and you are more than welcome to respond if that theme resonates with you. But if it doesn't, or you just want to spend time in worship, that's what this opportunity is for as well, to worship and praise God for his love for you and and thank him for all that he does for you because he doesn't have to love you, but he chose to. And we're going to worship God for that love.